So, John uh, chapter 3. By the time uh, we've got to uh, this chapter, I want to suggest that maybe there's a question that ought to be uh, in our minds. And perhaps a little bit of bemusement as well as we look out um, at this world. Because in John chapter 1, we saw extraordinary truths. Um, God became a man in Jesus. We don't know all the ins and outs of that. There are mysteries there. But it is the most extraordinary thing. We have seen the glory of the one and only, said John. Um, Again, in John uh, uh, chapter 1, we saw a first anticipation that Jesus would die for our sins. He is described by John the Baptist as the Passover lamb, the sacrificial lamb who will die for our sins. God's turned up and shown himself who, who he is in, in Jesus. God has, uh, 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 and Jesus has, has been promised as the sacrifice who will pay for all of our sins. John 2 then just, just, just adds to that. And we saw that the, the, the first incident in John chapter 2 is a, a very significant juncture. It is at the end of a week of ministry that John has described, the sort of culmination of seven days of ministry, but it also is a sign, the first of seven signs throughout John's Gospel. Here, here it is then, this is, this is a great, pivotal, important declaration of Jesus where, where he goes public about what he's like. And what does he do? He turns water into wine. He, he does something, not, not in judgment, but, but an amazing, wonderful act of grace. So, so here's why we ought to be bemused if we're reading John uh, aright. We ought to be bemused that everybody doesn't become a Christian. And what, what more do you want? Here is God become a man. Here is God paying for all of our sins. Here is God saying, hey, what I'm calling you to is the best life that you could possibly imagine. Let me symbolise it by turning water into wine. What? Why then... Don't, uh, doesn't everybody become a Christian? And perhaps you can think of lots of good reasons. Um, uh, some people might suggest, well, because there's not enough evidence for those things. You've got those statements, but, um, um, but where, where's the evidence? I'm reminded of Bertrand Russell was, was asked, famous atheist of a previous era, was, was asked by someone, if you died and you, you actually find there is a God and you meet him face to face, what would you say, um, uh, Mr. Russell? And he, sa- he said, I would say to God, you didn't give us enough evidence. Well, I think that's tosh, frankly. There is tons of evidence of the real Jesus. Uh, other people might say, well, people don't become Christians because the church's witness is naff. And I, frankly, I would have to agree with you most of the time. And I include my, uh, myself in that. But can't Jesus shine through inadequate vessels? 
Other people would point out, well, it may be great what Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus offers, it may be wonderful, but uh, let's, not put, uh, let, let's not beat about the bush. There are lots of things that Christians, uh, it's a people have to give up in order to become a Christian. And they rather like that, like those things that they have to give up. They have to become sexually restrained, for instance, and, uh, um, uh, and all sorts of things. Yeah, that's a, a reason why people don't become Christians. Let, let, let me tell you, though, the reason that John is going to present to us why people don't become Christians. John's going to say, because Jesus is going to say, in the end, people don't become Christians because they can't. All those other reasons may, may, may have some validity. But actually, if we don't understand the impact of Jesus in this world and why some respond and some don't and all of those things, we're going to need to engage with this truth. And that is what John now wants to present to us. John chapter 3, then will, first of all, tell us, actually, to become a believer, a miracle needs to happen. Then Jesus is going to justify that. And then he's going to show us the, the mechanism, what, what such mechanism such as it is, by which God does that miracle. So let's trace that through and have a look in John chapter Three. First of all, Jesus says, a miracle needs to happen. And um, uh, this all happens in this interaction with this man, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, verse 1, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He is clearly an important man, a Jewish man, a man who should know his God. Interestingly, he comes, verse 2, to Jesus at night. John um, uh, loves to, to pick out symbolically significant details in his stories. And there is little doubt that uh, John's recording of, of Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night is significant in his mind. Here is a man in darkness. Um, he comes... But he said something pretty good. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Um, still today, it is difficult to not come to at least that conclusion about Jesus. Anyone who, who reasonably studies the evidence comes to a confidence that he, he was at least a teacher who performed signs. Every early witness uh, agrees that. And it, it's not hard to, uh, uh, to um, uh, glean that evidence. Uh, N.T. Wright in his, in his book um, Jesus and the Victory in God, uh, God says it would be easier, frankly, to believe that Tiberius Caesar Jesus' contemporary was a figment of the imagination than to believe that there never was such a person as Jesus. Okay? So what Nicodemus knows 
we should know, anyone who looks at the evidence. Jesus was a teacher. We, Jesus was widely believed to come from God. Jesus performed signs. But Jesus is going to say, that is not enough. In fact, Nicodemus can't see something. He knows some facts, but there's something he can't see. Verse 3, Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. His eyes aren't really open to God working in this world, God's, God's kingdom. There's an awful lot he knows, but he can't see that, and therefore he is in darkness. Indeed, no one can, says Jesus, unless they are born again, or, or uh, uh, you could translate it, born from above. Nicodemus and every other person who has ever lived in history needs a miracle which is so profound it is described as being born again from God, born from above. Everywhere the Bible says that. It is a consistent witness. Back in the Old Testament, Psalm 119 verse 18, Open my eyes says the psalmist, that I may see wonderful things in your law. In other words, God, you need to open my eyes. That's why, partly why we sang that hymn. Speak, O Lord. Because God needs to do that. No one can, you can know certain facts, but no one can see really what God is doing. Unless God opens their eyes. When uh, um, Peter, in Matthew's Gospel, um, finally sees at least something of who Jesus is. Jesus says to him, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven, Matthew 16, verse 17. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Um, the Apostle Paul describing this, this enlightening work. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God displayed in the face of Christ. In other words, God who once created light, now in human beings and everyone who has become one of God's children does a new act of creation, speaking and letting light shine into, into our hearts. That's what the Bible says. You cannot see the kingdom unless God does a work. A miracle needs to happen. And Nicodemus um, misunderstands it. Verse 4, How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And uh, just as Nicodemus has moved from knowing to talking about entering, so Jesus moves from seeing to talking about entering again. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. He's saying the same thing, but in slightly different language. People have debated about what water and spirit might be. Old um, traditional interpreters said, well, water must be baptism, mustn't it? And spirit must be the, the, the work of God's Holy Spirit uh, in, in our lives. But it's probably not. It's probably an illusion back 
to uh, Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27. There Ezekiel promises God's people, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep um, my laws. So water there is described, sprinkling water, in terms of the forgiveness of sins. Israelites were considered dirty as a result of their sin. And here is water to wash away the sin. And spirit there in Ezekiel 36 is God's supernatural work of transforming hearts. I will move you to follow my decrees. So Jesus is, Jesus is expanding on what God will do then as he gives people this new vision, this new life as he enables them to enter the kingdom of God. He is saying that will involve forgiveness, cleansing by water. And that will involve transformation. So that you are moved to follow me by the Spirit. No one can enter the kingdom of God until God has done that for them. We cannot cleanse ourselves. You know, people think that, okay, you do some bad and you just do a bit of good to make up uh, for it. But, but, but that is frankly ridiculous. Once we have offended against the living God, a penalty needs to be paid. And God is so great that that penalty is actually very great. Now only Jesus could pay for that. And he will do on the cross. And people think they can transform themselves. But that's like, like, that's like being stuck in a, in, a, in a bog and saying, oh I'll lift myself out by uh, catching hold of my own collar. It just doesn't work. Listen to this from um, Douglas Coupland, a, a very interesting um, observer of the uh, uh, modern world. He wrote, uh, he invented the term Generation X and he wrote a book, Life After God. And here's what he puts on the very last page. Here is my secret. I tell it to you with an openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever achieve again. So I pray that you're in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is that I need God. That I am sick and can no longer make it alone. Now notice this. I need God to help me give because I no longer seem capable of giving. To help me be kind as I no longer seem capable of kindness. To help me love as I seem beyond being able to love. Unless a person is born of water and spirit, unless God works in their hearts and moves them to give, to love, 
to show kindness. They cannot do it. And Douglas Coupland knows that. We need a miracle. It is not enough just for Jesus to have turned up and shown us how great it is to be a Christian and a follower of his. A miracle needs to happen. But then Jesus moves on. The conversation moves on. He wants to prove that. He wants to uh, demonstrate that that is a reasonable thing. That's in verses 7 uh, to, to 10. First of all, he says in verses 7 and 8, he said, we should know we need a miracle if we understand the world. We should know we're not just completely in control of making our own decisions for ourselves if we understand the world. Look at how he puts it in verses 7 and 8. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. He's making a connection here by, between uh, the word for spirit and the word for wind, which is in the Greek language is the, is the same one. And he's, he's, he's using that to, to draw on a correlation between what he's saying about human hearts and what, he's, uh, 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 and, and what we observe in the wider world. Human hearts are not sovereign and completely in control of themselves. They need this mysterious work of the Spirit on them if they are going to be changed. And if you only looked at the world around, you'd see it's a perfectly reasonable thing to state. The wind is mysterious. We are not in control of the wind. The wind produces effects that, that, that um, uh, we are, are, are uncontrollable. If that happens in nature, why, uh, why are we so hostile to it happening in the human heart? Interesting, very interesting that he uses the wind as an example because it has been uh, observations of the wind and meteorology in the last uh, 50 or so years that have brought that truth home afresh to scientists. In the 1960s, a man called Edward Lorentz was uh, studying the weather and producing mathematical models for uh, predicting the weather and discovered entirely by accident that, that the tiniest changes in his figures in, in, in a computer com produced completely different effects just uh, a, f a few days hence. It came to be called the butterfly effect because of the idea that a, a butterfly just flapping its wings might produce an eddy which would produce a storm a thousand miles away in, in, in a month's time. The, the mathematicians and scientists call it chaos theory. And uh, they have uh, demonstrated, in fact, that it applies not just to the weather but all sorts of systems. Here's what Alistair McGrath 
says about it, a uh, scientist and a theologian. He says the same principles that could easily, be apply, could easily be applied to all systems governed by Newtonian dynamics, yielding the alarming result that they do not necessarily exhibit the predictability that would once have been regarded as an integral aspect of their behaviour. He's a scientist, he writes complicatedly. The weather is unpredictable. The world is unpredictable. Systems in the world are often chaotic. That's what Jesus is saying. You're not in control of the world. Indeed, only the sort of snake oil salesmen of scientists try and, uh, would try these days to claim that we can totally control the world. We cannot. And anyone who therefore has engaged with that truth must agree with Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. That you're not in control of your own heart. But you need a mysterious, uncontrollable work of God to change your heart. Nicodemus, haven't you looked at the weather? Because if you did, you'd see the sense of what I'm saying. You must be born again. The Spirit of God must work in you, Nicodemus, and you're not in control of it. God is. It is perfectly reasonable if we understand the world. Second point that he makes then, because uh, Nicodemus still seems to be rather obtuse, verse 9, how can this be? Nicodemus asked. And uh, the second point Jesus makes in verse 10 is that, uh, okay, he's proved it from our understanding of the, of the world. It's even more clear from our understanding of the Bible. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Israel's teacher was almost certainly an, an honorific title for a, a Bible teacher in, uh, in, in Jesus' day. Nicodemus knew his Bible. You know your Bible and you're still questioning whether a human being needs divine intervention to change? Isn't the whole message of the Old Testament um, uh, uh, summed up in some senses by human beings cannot help themselves. The very best of them were pathetic. Let alone the worst of them. The whole of Israel went astray and failed. If you haven't grasped that from reading the Old Testament, Nicodemus, you haven't grasped the first uh, lesson of the Old Testament. But, but here's something else that the Old Testament says. Again and again, popping up in the later prophets come promises that God is going to do something about that. Human beings cannot help themselves, but God will. It was there in, in Ezekiel 36 that Jesus has already alluded to. God is going to come in and sprinkle them with water. God is going to come in and, and, and give them hearts, move them to follow his laws. But that's not an isolated incident. Look at Jeremiah 31, for instance, in the Old Testament, 
where, where, where God says, I, I'm going to write the, my law on their hearts. Or uh, in, uh, um, in Isaiah chapter 60, after uh, chapter after chapter has proved that human beings cannot help themselves. Then you find in Isaiah 60 this wonderful picture of, of the sun rising and shining on the heart of human beings and transforming them and in turn them being so transformed that other people flock to them like homing pigeons. Like, like mysterious, it uses the mystery of the clouds. Who are these like clouds floating along? The idea of the wind again is there. Coming into the kingdom of God. Mysteriously, God is drawing them in. It was all over the place in the Old Testament. Nicodemus, didn't you notice it? You must be born again. We need a miracle. And nature cries out to us, you are not in control, you cannot change yourself. The Bible cries out to us even more clearly, you are not in control. You cannot change yourself, God must change you. That is so important for us. For, for anyone who's not yet a believer, that is so important for them to give up on thinking that they are sovereign, they are in control, that they will make their decision to follow Jesus. There's a, uh, 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 an evangelist who says when, when he meets someone, he says, oh, I'm, I'm free to follow Jesus, I can make the decision. He says, okay, do it then. We're not in control. Only God can change us. And for us who are believers, it is so important to realise it wasn't somehow the dignity of our character, it wasn't the fact that I've got a brain that worked it out better than the next person, it wasn't that I've got a heart that is, that is somehow more intrinsically respons- responsive to God. It was none of those things. It was a sovereign, mysterious work of God, as mysterious as the wind always has been and always will be. God changed you. Rejoice in that. Praise Him in your hearts. It is a sovereign work of God. You must be born from above. But then Jesus goes on, there is something that can happen, that, 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 that happens, that needs to happen. There is a process. Let me just uh, show you very quickly before we finish. What the process by which we are born again is that we look at Jesus that's what he says. He has a very enigmatic thing that he says in, uh, uh, in where is it, um, verse 14, which makes this point. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have 
eternal life. He's alluding back to an Old Testament story in which the Israelites were in the desert and they got bitten by snakes and they were dying. And Moses made a, a bronze serpent and, 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 uh, or had a bronze serpent, serpent and it was, it was held up, a, a snake, and peculiarly, frankly, everybody who looked to that snake was healed when they were bitten. Makes no particular sense in the Old Testament. But uh, Jesus says, well, that, that was waiting for its fulfilment in me. Because I will be lifted up on the cross. I will be displayed to the world in one sense crucified for your sins. And what do you do when I'm displayed in that way? You run around and try and find a way to get your sins forgiven? No. This is what you do, he says. You look at me. You learn to trust me. You learn to accept that I am your only hope because I died for your sins. The Israelites, they only had that bronze serpent. You've got me. The Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. We can't do anything but we can look at Jesus. And we can ask God to do that mysterious work in our hearts and give us eternal life. For believers here, let me say, pray that God will do that miracle. You can't do it. He can. For other people. And show them Jesus. Because that is the mechanism that God uses. By which people have new life. And for anyone who's not yet a believer here. Pray. That God will do that miracle in your heart. And look at Jesus. And see if he doesn't do something that changes you forever.